we are his image bearers, he would not have any of us despise our own journeys. The Profile with Premier Christianity Magazine. Hello, you're listening to Premier Christian Radio with me, Sam Howes. I'm the editor of Premier Christianity Magazine. That is the UK's leading Christian magazine, and it sponsors this show. Every week, we hear from a different Christian, something of their life, faith, and testimony. And our guest on the show this week is Beth Moore. She's been speaking to Claire Musters. Beth Moore is a Bible teacher and the founder of Living Proof Ministries. At the tender age of 18, following a life-changing experience of God's presence, Beth Moore surrendered her life to vocational Christian service. Knowing she wanted everything she did thereafter to be ministry, she found herself leading a Christian exercise class in her local church. This was in 1980, during the height of the aerobics craze. What began as a small side project for the young mother eventually morphed into a huge speaking and writing ministry known as Living Proof, and it's gone on to reach millions of women right across the world. In more recent years, Beth Moore has hit the headlines for leaving her beloved denomination, the Southern Baptist Convention, the largest Protestant denomination in the US, and it began with Donald Trump. Beth Moore was not in the habit of wading into US politics, but in 2016 she felt she could no longer ignore the widespread evangelical support for the then presidential candidate. The 65-year-old has always been open about her own personal struggles, including the abuse she suffered as a child. But her new memoir, All My Knotted Up Life, reveals other details for the first time, including the mental health issues she and her husband have wrestled with. Despite the battles she has endured and the challenges she's faced, she is, she says, still very much a passionate Jesus follower. And you're going to hear lots more about Beth Moore, her life and her faith, Right now, this is Beth Moore in conversation with Claire Musters. You're listening to The Profile. You are very well known as a speaker, as a Bible teacher um, and a writer. And you've already intimated to it the the fact that you've split from the Southern Baptist Convention. There's been a lot of controversy. Um, but you do, you go right the way through your life in this book. You're very open and honest. Um, and you grew up in Arkansas with I did. your mum and your dad, your three siblings and your nan. I know you moved to Texas after a while. Yes. But can you yes. just, you've already said that your your home life was very tumultuous. But if you could sum it up, just what your family was like. I, I yes. missed out a few things. You said like your family, one of your core values as a family was fear. that people. Oh, yes. So if you, but you also spent a huge amount of time in church. So they're just, it seems like a very interesting family setup. But before Clear. we get into any of the details, but yeah, you've got it. I mean, you've got it. And, and again, that's why the title is what it is, is because in all of this upheaval, if, if you ask me, Beth, did you know you were loved when you were growing up? Clear. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. I knew I was loved. I had a lot of love. And also at the same time, I was being abused and all at the same time that my home was incredibly unstable, we were walking through the doors of a very, very stable and stabilizing church. So my family, and this was this was extremely common 
back in that day. So think of my parents, if they were still alive, you know, they would be a hundred and something now. So to rewind the clock to that day, and I don't know how it would be among you on your side of the pond, but for us in that day, it was very, very common that a family would go to church every time the doors opened, and that's what we did, but yet not talk about it a lot at home. It wasn't, I sort of did we did it a different way in my generation. We tried very, very hard to as consistently as we knew how to um, that God was in our a lot of our conversations and in our considerations at home. But in those days, you just like you went. And so it, the contrast, even driving the the Volkswagen bus from our home to our church and piling out of it, these eight people under this one roof, even that was just like, what in the world, what a life that it is this messed up over here. And yet we walk into this place of familiar sounds, of, of familiar sights, of knowing I would know exactly in the service when a certain man on the back row in our sanctuary, I couldn't even tell you what his face looked like, but I could tell you at what point he was going to go, hey, man in that service because everything was everything was constant everything there was choir there was handbell choir there were missions classes there was sunday school and church and there was my grandmother and all of her friends in their pillbox hats and all and so all of all of this happening at once and so it really truly was like and i, I believe that a lot of people could describe their story somewhat the same way and and so you know you're young and thinking if you're able to think through these thoughts, how does this all turn out? What wins? What wins? And even if you said, okay, Beth, you get to the end of the book, what, what won? I still would have to tell you, did you, Beth, did you win? No, no. I still, I feel, I feel scarred that I feel bruised up, but I can tell you that Christ won. He, he won. If he was after my, priority affections, if he wanted to captivate me as the one utterly trustworthy person in this entire human and universal existence, listen, he did it. If he wanted to set himself apart in my eyes from everything else, if he wanted to keep me in the scriptures because I wasn't going to make it, if I wasn't in this, if he wanted to do that, if he wanted to ensure that he would have my attention all of my life, Claire, Jesus won. But you, you actually committed your life as quite a young child, and mm-hmm. before all this madness. Oh yes, this, yes. Uh, well, there was madness was- already. Yes, okay. there was madness already. But I was about nine when I made. Yeah. I don't know the terminology that that many of our listeners would use, but what I made in, in our tradition, in our Southern Baptist tradition, which which I do want to say I, I dearly loved and would not trade, uh, even if I'm no longer part of it, we made a public profession of our faith, and so I'd have been nine, and then 18 when I surrendered to ministry. So, yes. Yeah, yeah. But I, you say when you turned 11, you, you describe that this madness descended your house. Total madness. Um, and you Total said, madness. You said no kind of good dad does what my dad did oh, to no. me, no. and and at the same time, 
you also had your mum becoming ill and, yes. and in her room. So, and in the bed. Yeah. yeah. In so the can, bed. Can you describe a little bit? I mean, one of my questions was, how did all of this, can you, I, you don't go into a huge amount of details in your book, but can no. you describe it a bit and how it affected the relationship with him? Uh, I will. And if I, and if I don't go where you want me to go, I cleared you, then redirect me. But I'll tell you some of the basics because my home had been unstable all along in one way or another. And I can look back even in my young childhood and already see it. I had I could I had a lot of anxiety. I had I manifested a lot of the behaviors that someone would do if they had been traumatized pretty early on. So there are things that I can't remember that are way back there that there just seems to be no dragging up, but I don't know what they are. But that point at 11 is when that's when I would tell you that we had been through all sorts of turmoil and instability. And somebody's going to be able to relate to what I'm about to say. But when I was 11, madness came in. And I, I'm I'm just going to say to you, there is a difference between trouble and suffering and turmoil and then utter, complete madness when you feel like there's no making sense of anything, when you feel like everybody has gone crazy every and you're a kid and you're trying to think who in the world is going to come and and get you and come and rescue you you know it's an interesting thing Claire when when you're abused in childhood when I was abused and anyone I've ever talked to that was abused in childhood even in even in their own home I can tell you that you already know they have done something terrible to you that they should not have done, you know that what they are doing is wrong. Even without ever having heard the words molestation, abuse, anything, a kid knows inherently that a parent is supposed to take care of them and they are not supposed to want them in any um, in any uh, illicit and um, evil way. So it is so disturbing when a protector becomes a perpetrator. And I, I will say this to our listeners, and I don't, I wrote this, I don't know that all abuse victims would agree with me and survivors would agree with me on this, Claire, but I wouldn't have thought clearly about it until I wrote this sentence in this part of the book, but I do believe that it's true that there are certain things that people can do, let's say parents can do, that you know, you know, they still had so much goodness about them, that they made a big mistake, like they may have been out of it for a while. Okay, say for instance, because I talk a little bit about my dad not being faithful to my mother, could I have come into adolescence and young adulthood thinking that someone could still be, they could really have really good parts to them and ha have done something that wrong or that much that they'd regret. Yes, yes. I could think for somebody to have, somebody might have embezzled something from their company and had to repay it and all of these kinds of things could I still think but there's there's sides of them that were not that way when a parent 
abuses a child sexually or physically or enough so psychologically and emotionally, there is a point to which you know something was so wrong that to in your mind there was no part of it that was unaffected. So I, I never could think, but this was good about him. No. From the time I was abused by him throughout my childhood, no matter what good he did in my heart, I thought, you are not a good person. Not not while any of that was still going on and, and when there was no sorrow for it and no no repentance for it. So that is huge. Would you honestly think to yourself, I have a person in charge of me and in charge of my protection that has that is evil. And I mean, that's what that wicked you're wicked, you know, and um, and harmful. And you have committed a crime. I wouldn't have known it that at that time that I could have called it a crime. But you've committed a crime against me. But it was how do I explain this? It was all-encompassing. It truly threw me badly enough to where I couldn't see in that period of time any good side to him at all, no matter how he he pretended, no matter how he acted, no matter what good deeds he might have done to me. If you can do that, something is very wrong with you when you could do that to your own child and when it appears not to have been singular. So um, ooh, it was tough. So, you know, this is who I'm raised by. So th- there was no way, if, if somebody said today, you know, why didn't you tell it? Oh, in that day, there was no telling it. None, especially in a small town. I'm clear, you live right outside of London, don't you? Do I understand that? that? So I'm in a very, very uh, large city, too. Not London large, but I'm Houston large. And, um, you know, I've, I've said with a bit tongue-in-cheek many, many times, if you're going to live a messed-up life, it's better not to do it in a small town because everybody, everybody knows. They're just, there was no way. There was just no way as a child. I wouldn't have even known where to go. My mother, it seemed to me, was completely losing her uh, her grip, and my dad um, was was all manner of messed up and my grandmother was old and it was like where do we go from here so do you, it do you think do you think that what was going on with your mum was a result of did she know what what your dad was doing we of course that's a question that adult children in a situation like ours ask themselves a hundred times i I cannot imagine that she did. I cannot imagine that she did. Maybe because I truly can't bear to imagine that she did. It would be unlike her, um, but I, or what, unlike what she seemed to be. But what I will say to you is that she knew, I believe that she knew he was messed up uh, and dysfunctional sexually. I think that she did know that. I think that in her mind, he would not have gone to the extent that he did, that he might be unfaithful to her, or maybe he had this this problem or that addiction or whatever, but I don't think in her wildest imagination 
she would have thought of it turning um, to, I'll just say it's for myself, to me. And so I, I'm going to say no, but I will tell you so that I don't paint her as a saint. It was very, very bad timing to look away. And she did know that he was not living an honest nor decent life at that time. And, of course, she had an illness, and that's a whole different thing. But I'll just say that there were not, even when she would come out of it for a while, there were not the pertinent questions. We had every kind of symptom of kids who were had been thrown into a most unstable situation but she just couldn't you know she couldn't handle the uh the facts of it but i'll still say no i don't think that she ever imagined he was like that but she knew that he was not living uh, an honest life. Okay. So just to jump forward a bit, you said you described a time when you were in high school and you met a great guy and you went yes. and saw, saw what his family setup was like yes. and immediately thought, okay, I've got to be somebody different to who I am. I need to shut yes. down my ugly truth, yes. as you call it. So how, yes. do, how would you say that moment of making that decision to shut down then went on to affect you as you grew yes. in adulthood? Yes, high school. And then I did the same strange thing in college. And I won't get ahead of the story here, but this is such an interesting phenomenon that we have in our in our Christian faith. And I want to speak to it just a moment because I think that one thing that has done us a lot of harm is, and it, it did me harm at the time, is misunderstanding what forgiveness really looks like and misunderstanding what I'm thinking in terms of Philippians chapter 3, where Paul says, but this one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and reaching ahead to that which is before me, I press toward the goal. That does not, he's talking about his trophies in life. He's talking about all the things that were gained to him. He doesn't mean that he is never going to remember the wrongs that were done in his past. It, and in fact, he continues on throughout his whole ministry to tell about the mess that he was. So he certainly had not forgotten uh, that he had persecuted the church. He had not forgotten any of those things. But okay, so every time I got an opportunity for a new start, I sort of did this weird thing. And so I'm going to say, let's let's take it as a couple of times here, because we moved from from Arkansas into Texas, into Houston. This is where I began again. It's new. It's new. No one here, because you you can't live in a small town and have as many problems as we did and not think some people were onto it. You you couldn't. My mom's friends would have known that my mom went basically went to sleep, basically hibernated through part of our lives. But we so we move, we start all over again. Now we're still bringing dragging every none of that has been sorted out. My mom doesn't even know all that happened yet. All she knows is what has happened to her. And what he's done to her, and she thinks that all the upheaval is over all of that. So we carry this into Houston, but we've got a new start. And they don't go to, to church at that point. And my mother wasn't about to go to church uh, with with him, with him acting you know like he was pious. 
But so they dropped out for a while, but I, I found a way to go and rode with someone else. And then I took my own car when I turned 16. But I did the same thing in college and in a strange sort of way, the same thing in marriage. It was just like new start, put all of that behind me. And I honestly thought clear, I just want to speak this to somebody that is in this same trap. I just I honestly thought that the Christian way is just don't, just put it behind you. And I'm going to say something. There are things that happen in this life that you cannot just put behind you. They are in you. So the only, you can't put them behind you because they're in you. So all you can do is is push them down. Well, I'm going to tell you something. That pressure cooker is coming up. It's coming up. And that doesn't mean you can't forgive. There's a way of sorting through the forgiveness, but we cannot forgive what we will not face. And so what I did, I just stuffed it further and further down. And when that thing blew, I am telling you, it blew sky, like a geyser, like a geyser. So it was extremely difficult. But I want to say to somebody, listen, work it through. Work it through. Um, you, If you've had a parent that has abused you or you have had a, a spouse that has abused you or someone that was supposed to be trustworthy that betrayed you, listen, that that's that you can't just put that behind you. It's in you. It needs it needs treating. It needs treating. And the Lord will often use a really, really good professional therapist to help us work it out. But we need to give him access to that. Sure. I'm I'm going to try and, and jump ahead a little bit. So I could Oh, please do. Lots of things I want to talk to you about. Please do. Can yeah. I thank you for something, clear? I want to thank you because I'm several interviews into talking about the book. And it's all together a different situation and conversation when the person, the host has read the book. And I just want to thank you so much because I've been in some conversations where, and I, I respect it. I understand that it's hard to have time uh, to read. Um, but it's so much more fun. Thank you. I can tell you've actually read it, and I'm I'm so grateful. Yeah, like you're very welcome. It was fascinating and actually really moved me as well. So thank you. Mm, thank I'm you. so grateful for that. Um, I so I, I kind of want to skip through. I mean, I had loads of questions for you, but I'm never going to get through all of them. So you you did feel a call to ministry, as you yes. mentioned when you were 18, and around the kind of what what actually one thing I do want to ask you is. Um, when you felt you'd been called into ministry, what was the response of your church and your pastor? My church and pastor could not have been any happier or more supportive. That 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 person was really the only one. I mean, they, they knew they knew based on how much I served there that it would have been pretty consistent with what they had seen. And I had not been there a, a, a very long time because I'd only gone in the summer because I was away at school. And this was when my parents were starting to go back to church. Again, my mother knew nothing about what had happened to me. All she knew was all the upheaval we had had over, over unfaithfulness. So they were going back now. And so it was really a time of like, everything's perfect now. Everything is just perfect now. But um, in in that, oh, uh, they I don't think they were the least surprised. And it was a wonderful church. I want to say this to you, Claire. It was a wonderful church as far as I know. I have not invested my life in any church that I know today was hiding, was that I don't, I don't know of anything about 
that church hiding in any kind of abuse. I don't know anything bad about that church. So it wouldn't have been perfect by any stretch, but it was it was uh, it was godly people. And so they received me extremely warmly. Hey, this is Sam. Really hope you're enjoying this conversation right here on the Profile Podcast today. Could you do me a favour right now? It will take you just two seconds to give us a rating and a review wherever you found this podcast. Just a couple of seconds to give us a rating is so, so helpful. It helps other people to discover the show as well. So if you could do that, we would so appreciate it. So while you were working all of that out and what that might look like, you met Keith, who you said was totally different to you thought seemed quite incompatible but you did your relationship developed you got married and you you talk about the fact that soon after your honeymoon he woke up from a horrific of a nightmare and oh yes you discovered that he had ptsd from yes a horrific tragedy in his past absolutely and also went on to be diagnosed with bipolar i mean that is a huge thing that you guys must have been dealing yes. with and yes how did that affect your marriage and how did you how did you manage to stay together? I mean, that's enormous. It's important that people understand that I came into the marriage with absolutely as much baggage as he ever thought of having. So even though he would have a certain diagnosis, and that would not come until much later, even though he would be diagnosed with something that ha- would help explain uh, some of the things that he had endured, I came in with just as much madness and just as much brokenness. So you got to understand these two people, it was part of what drew us together. It was almost as if we looked across a campus of 16,000 kids and went, hmm, now who could match me on brokenness? And we found one another. And his was, of course, through tragedy. And you're 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 describing exactly right. Only I go so far as to say a night terror, and I mean not only terror to him. And this was just a couple of nights after we got back from our honeymoon. So I had never spent the night with him. So I had never known it was our honeymoon. I mean we we had all manner of problems and all manner of thing going when we were dating. But I'm just saying I had not lived with him until we actually married. And we were just back a couple of nights and he stands straight up in the bed. So this is not all the four, this is in the bed. And he yells the most terrifying kind of sound that I had ever heard. I knew, I didn't know what he was seeing. I I looked for an intruder because I thought somebody's in here with a gun. I, I didn't have any idea what, but when I saw that there wasn't, anything and that he was in a he was completely asleep and just I mean just yelling um it it was terrifying not only to him it was terrifying to me and it was terrifying to try to you know I didn't know when to touch him and when to help him sit back down and and to whisper to him and get him to understand that it was me and I was right there with him and we would be okay I did know at that time the trauma that he I knew of the trauma I would not know for years, nor would he, all the things that it entailed. But of course, I knew that he and his brother, his older brother, when they were just toddlers, I mean toddlers, were playing in a garage and um, began to play with the can of gasoline for the lawnmower, and it rolled in under the water heater and exploded. And his brother um, 
lived for six days. And it's terrible enough that he passed away. What could be worse for a family than that? But add to it that he was six days before he passed away and six days in a state of being burned over most of his body. It was, well, it indescribable. It would have been the kind of tragedy that a family just never, never recovers from. And Keith and his mom, I, I don't think any of them did fully. They all would have dealt with it in different ways and came into you know very fruitful adulthoods and all those things that we are so thankful for. God's had so much mercy on us. But I can tell you for sure that Keith and his mother just never recovered from it. They would have been the main ones involved in the direct suffering of it. And um, Keith was in the same room with his brother till his brother passed in the same hospital room. The trauma of that was just just unmanageable for all of them. So he would return over and over and over in his dreams. And this has gone on. This would have gone on. He would have had one of these kinds of dreams even even three years ago. So deep in there that in a deep sleep to go back to that place, go back to that garage, go back to that fire. And so it has been uh, really something. It has been wrestling with such... A, an enormous beast for him. But one of the things that I'll say in, in both of those, those diagnoses, and they were very much, they very much played into the other. So they very much, um, how can I say, they fed one another. The PSD, PSTD, PSD played into the bipolar, the bipolar played into the post-traumatic stress. So it was just, it was just something else. But one thing I would like to say, because somebody listening needs to hear this, there are so many terrible things about mental illness and this kind of mental agony. But one thing needs to be understood from the top, and that is that it is not the person's fault. It was not his sins. It was not anything that he had asked for, and there's not any shame in it. And when he and I came to the decision to share this part of our lives with people, it was it was making that kind of a choice to say there are so many people dealing with this inside their homes that feel like they can't tell anyone how difficult it is. And we just wanted to go, you know what? We've been there. We know what what this is like. And and you'll know from my story that I share that I fell into a deep deep despair and depression in my mid-30s. So I say that because it is very important to me that readers understand that in no way am I centering that all of our difficulties were Keith. (laughs) Trust me when I tell you that we had equal shares of bondage we brought into that marriage. Yeah. So, so, so much, as you say, so much brokenness with both of you. But but also the beauty, I mean, you had two wonderful daughters and and as they were growing, your ministry started blossoming. And yes, it was it fa- fascinating to see that it started with an aerobic exercise yes, class that yes. 
Were you were choreographing to yes. the Christian Ring? Yes, absolutely, Claire. And then you added in devotionals. So how did all that come about? Can you just say that really quickly? Oh, I can because all you have to do is look at my age and the age I was at the peak of the aerobics craze, and it was a natural so I am telling you, this was the day. Now, I don't know. You, you're you not in the territory of, of these kinds of mega churches that that I would have gone to and would have been part of in Houston at this point at First Baptist Church of Houston, Texas. But we have a huge, huge Christian Life Center. And it had everything you could imagine, gyms. It had racquetball courts, everything. And so I had been asked, and it had been at an earlier church, but I ended up teaching it at this church at, at Houston's uh, First Baptist. I had just been asked after I got married that aerobics was just like a craze. And there were people at my church that just went, Beth, you need to teach us a class. You need to teach this at our church. And you know, I was kind of given to it because I always, I always loved to dance. I always loved music. And so I was like, well... I can tell you this because I had already surrendered that whatever I did, it would be blatantly, to, I would give blatant glory to God. So I said, I got to find out some way that it would be ministry to do it. And that's where the Christian music came in and all of that. But let me tell you something, Claire. I still run into people and still know people that were in that class. And we still say that we wish we were in it. We had so <laughs> much fun. So I taught it for 12 solid years. I loved it. I taught an advanced uh, class and I taught an intermediate class and taught, you know, three, three classes a week. But at the same time, I was growing as a speaker and then ultimately as a Sunday school teacher. And then when I started writing Bible studies, uh, that is when I had to give it up. And, um, but I, oh, I loved it. I loved it. It was still to this day, one of the most fun things I ever did. And so you founded your ministry living proof in, in uh-huh. 94. Um, yes. And as you say, you began, your speaking grew and grew and you started um, speaking to arenas. Um, so how did your family navigate as, because they were still growing, your daughters were still growing up, the busyness of what was happening with you yes. in the ministry? Yes. What Keith and I determined would work, I did not start writing Bible studies that got, you know, that would end up getting picked up by Lifeway and distributed. I did not start doing that until the kids were in middle school. And so that helped a lot. Now, before that, I was I was already going places to speak. But in their younger years, this is the beauty of living in a place like Houston. The same would be true of London. I could speak while they were in kindergarten. I could go and speak at a luncheon and already be back before the bus ever pulled up. So in some of those years, and then I would, oh, I'd go for the night. It was usually two nights a month, never never consecutive. Two nights a month, I would be in some Texas town speaking, and I'd be back the next day. So it was still, yes, they had a working mom, but I still was the one carpooling, doing doing the things I got, I got the chance to raise my own children. They would definitely tell you that. But, and then, and then writing, um, and then a lot of that writing just took place while they were at school. But the, I cannot tell you that it was not without effect when it exploded. And it, it and I, I mean exploded in, in the way of growth with the, with the Bible studies. They, they started, and it, we would have thought they started with a bang, but we wouldn't have been, begun to know 
um, what was coming. But about by the time about the third study was coming out, I mean, it was picking up steam like like crazy, and our groups were getting bigger and bigger. And that was not without effect. I, I want to tell you, and I want to brag on my family about this. Um, I I appreciate this about them. None of them ever sought to be seen and known. My girls, to this day, both of them are very shy of the spotlight. Um, both of them are very active in their own communities. Um, Melissa works here with me. Amanda's on our board of directors. They are busy people, all the things. But if you think they want a large following, they they would run from that. And so they did. They were not ambitious. They were not all in it. And there was a, a cost with it. Um, and and I would tell you, it. I I worried about it early on. Um, and I, I, I loved it. I wouldn't take back any of that experience because it, it was, we lived the craziest thing. Um, we lived such a wild, wild experience. But I knew it was fraught even then. I, I knew, girl, if you get through this, I, I knew, Claire, that that, that kind of, of I'm going to call it this, and I hate it. I hate to call it this, but I'm just talking about in the larger Christian culture, by the time somebody's got that kind of celebrity, and here it is, you truly, clear. I have made so many mistakes. I have done so many stupid things. I've mistaught things. I know what it's like to be in a deep pit of sin. You name it. But I will tell you that this one part of my life that I wanted to serve Jesus with everything in me was true to the bone. It was it was the desire of my heart to please Jesus and to proclaim the gospel. That was as true. So here's what I knew. I knew, okay, you get to the other side of this without losing that, it's going to be a dang miracle. And uh, I still believe I, I believe this with all my heart, and I have some friends that would argue with me about this, but I still believe that that big celebrity, the Christian celebrity, would be is something to survive. It is not something you will not thrive. It's just not. It's not conditions. Like would I have wanted to stay in it? No, I, I didn't have any choice anyway. You know, we were gonna then you know lose our um, novelty, but uh, it. I knew it was dangerous at the time. And um, I'm not sad that I got to experience it, nor am I sad to be on the other side of it. I don't, I'm not looking, I promise you, I'm not looking for arenas, Claire, for whatever, for whatever that's worth. I, I, I don't, a lot of people that may have that on their plate right now and may have that ahead of them and don't know it, but I'm not looking for that. So, so let's have a let's just move on to look at why you say you're on the other side of that, and and what the journey's been, um, and what you've discovered, and yes, why you're no longer with the Southern Baptist Convention. Yes. You, you talk in the book about your coming of age coinciding with um, Jerry Falwell's moral majority, yes. yes, and the Southern Baptist Convention's conservative resurgence. So, could yes. you just explain what you mean by that? Yes, yes. And I know that those will be um, unusual terms for 
a number of our listeners, but they were very shaping. And what I attempted to do in the memoir was to tie together the most shaping things in my life, and whether that's shaping for the good or the bad. But the reason why I wanted to speak into the moral majority and the way that it affected me is that somehow I would have been in, you know, I would have been graduating from college and marrying when it was really, really picking up speed. And even though it as an entity only lasted a fairly short time, it's impact and its way of thinking is still very much in play today. And this was this conflating of uh, of conservative Christianity with politics, and in particular with republicanism. And I need you to understand, I, I am a conservative, but I knew going in I don't know how, because I look back at that young woman, Claire, and in some ways, I did not know my right hand from my left, but something about the mixture of, I'm, I'm an army brat. I love to say the Pledge of Allegiance, but I don't want my American flag conflated with my Bible in my sanctuary at church. Those were this was this was my this is my nationality. This is the country that I love. This is where I live. This is my savior. This this is Jesus. These these are two very different things. And it even in my young mind, I would have thought, hmm, seems to me, and I certainly believe this now, and I can put words to it that I couldn't have worded then, that we as Christians have to be free agents. That we we can't be bought. Or it seems to me, I'm just saying, it seems to me, and there are other people that would see it differently, but it seems to me, no, there's, I, once I make deals, once I start shaking hands with politicians that are going to give us this if we give them our support, then what's in play from the very beginning is compromise. There's no other way to do it. There's no other way to do it. It, it is, you know, marrying into a worldly system. So that that was troubling. On the other hand, the conservative resurgence, one of the things that, that you would have to understand about the way that I thought. This I bought into totally, only to discover in the last, say, 10 or so years, what about it, that there were there were very good things that came out of it, and then there were rotten, rotten things that not only came out of it, but that were part of its formation that I would have not ever recognized. Ever. And that was using the scriptures for control. Not, you know, if to me, here I am, a lay person at my church, all I'm understanding is, oh, here's the battle. These are the people that have left fidelity to the scriptures. These people are no longer, they no longer believe that the scriptures are the authoritative word of God. They're doing their own things. They, they are not faithful anymore. And then there's the rest of us. And so that to me, I, I couldn't have seen any distinction there. Uh, I mean, any any kind of gray there, total distinction between those two worlds. Well, I certainly wanted to be over here in the faithful world, but I didn't understand that part, part, not all, I don't, I couldn't tell you what all these motives were. I'm telling you, in the aftermath, what came to be the fruit of it became clearer that some of the motive of it was to control, that you had a way to, you could control where men were always in charge and women were always um, 
not just secondary, but always underneath it, always underneath this whole system. And I couldn't, it took me years, years to see that for what it was. It was not until I had started getting, what would be the word? I had started getting very suspicious about the motives, even 15 years ago, um, thinking to myself, hmm, I don't, some of this smells, <laughs> some of this doesn't smell like a Holy Spirit to me. Some of this smells, some of this smells rotten. But then in 16, in 2016, when we went crazy, crazy for Trump, and listen, I won't get into all this with you, but I had been around through the whole Bill Clinton thing. So I had seen, I had seen what our response was to anybody who had certain characteristics or certain things in their life or in their past or whatever. I I had seen that. And then I watched this complete about face. And now one of the things that does become obvious in the memoir is, is, I hope, is the major reason why there's no possible way I could have stayed silent through that whole thing. Uh, I just, I was so appalled. I was so appalled that there were many that had been my peers. I had served with a lot of these people that were like, oh, and it wasn't that they were just saying, we got to do it anyway. There were those. And I, I never, those, those I'm not taking on right now. Uh, those I wasn't taking on in the book and those I wasn't taking on when I first became outspoken because I understood the quandary. I'm talking about the ones that despite the excess Hollywood, all of that, despite all of these things, it was like, it was like he was the poster person for Christianity. Like he was the salvation. It was almost a messianic fervor. And I'll have people argue that to the death with me and and I, I get it. We might have been sitting in two different seats looking at it from two different perspectives. But to me, it was like, oh, I see women. This is how much we value women, that we are not going to have a fit over this, a fit, a public fit. And uh, and we didn't. Uh-uh. And your your response to that when, when you fully realized that and watched how they were all fawning over Trump on Twitter, you decided the next day to write a series yeah. of tweets in response. So yes, why did you do it that way? Um, what was your main message? And then if you can briefly describe what the response was, because I know that, that that just blew up as well, didn't it? Oh, oh, it absolutely did. And you know, I, I thought, okay, let me say this so I get it in front of myself so our listener can understand the sequence of it. I had just been four days in Chinle, Arizona, in Navajo Nation, and I had been serving there at a conference, and I had also been in home after home after home after home, and I met the most fabulous women, mighty women of God, and I'd also heard a lot of stories, and a lot of stories that were not very different from my own. I had seen a lot of women come out of very rough situations that the Lord had just, you know, raised them from by his good kindness and mercy and grace. And But I had also seen, you know, I was very aware of the pain that comes by way of abuse, uh, 
particularly so when I came home from that event because I had been so, with so many women one-on-one and heard so many stories one-on-one. And so I wait. I know something's exploding, but I wait until I'm on my way home so that I can stay centered and focused on those wonderful uh, Native American women. And I get on the plane, and then that's when I read it. And then I read a whole transcript of it, and I am just like, you know, it is one thing when we're talking about sexual immorality. I don't think many people are shocked about politicians or past presidents or whatever it may be, turning out to have been perhaps unfaithful to their spouse. I think that it's not right, but I think that it's something that people know easily can come out in time. This, to me, was not just sexual immorality. This is what, this is, this is, talking toward assault here when we're talking about grabbing someone grabbing someone that is not consenting you're grabbing someone they can tell me all day long but it was just talk it was just talk. then clear it up you know then you i'm gonna tell you something then it don't and don't have there be how many people who could attest to the fact or would have said that they had been on the other side of that that he indeed did do those things i don't I don't know that for a fact. I'm saying that it became clear that what he was big talking about was not just locker room talk, not when it not when this comes out and that comes out. It just seemed to me, and I'll say it seemed to me all day long because I have people that I love that see this very, very differently, but I couldn't know. I couldn't I just I could not stomach it. I absolutely could not stomach it. So I got, and I'm, I'm, I'm completely calm that morning that I write those tweets. I know I knew exactly what I was doing. I had my prayer time that morning. And so I basically went, and I want to say this, this is important for me to say on here, Claire, because I've had so many people say, why did you enter politics? I, I did not enter politics to enter politics. I entered into the conversation because of what it was doing in the church um, I had always had political opinions. Why had I never shared them? Because it had not become a thing that had been to me a blatant, uh, a blatant black eye on the face of evangelicalism, which I could not have been more deeply steeped in. And so, what I was doing, I expected Donald Trump to be exactly like Donald Trump. I will say that until un- until the the last of my days. I I did. He did not surprise me. He he's floored me, but he did not surprise. I expected him to be just like it was. What I didn't expect was for us to be like we were. What he brought out in us that I could not have been more surprised by. That for many, again, there were there were some who objected or said, "Whoa, we're going to have to work this out. We're going to have to hold our nose, cast this vote if we if we're going to um, be." be pro-life, all of these things, which are all, you know, we could argue till the end of the day. But I'm talking about the ones that just went, no, this is our hero. And they just would never relent. So it was those that I spoke. It was the church. 
I was talking about, it was leaders in the church that I steered that toward. It was to say, what in the world are we doing? What in the world are we doing? And so, yeah, it was the impact of it was fierce and fast. And I think, Claire, one of the things I would say is that I expected it from the men, I think, um, and at that point, didn't care. I, I, I was so, I was so mad at those guys right then that it was just like, oh, oh, if you're not going to take up for us, all bets are off here. If this is, is this is how this is going now. So you know, I would have, I, I knew I was probably inviting that. No, not to the degree that I did. I couldn't have imagined it. But I didn't expect the women to respond negatively. And of course, of course, there were some that didn't, but the vast majority, when I tell you there were repercussions of it, I, I, I don't, I don't, I'm not sure I could even really uh, estimate how deep the repercussions were, but it was, it was fierce and it was fast and it was daily getting on. And I still, I still get on to social media with a lot of it. It was daily getting on to a, like a firing squad a firing squad. So uh, it was something else, and it changed the whole... I mean, it it changed the events. It changed... I mean, people dropped the Bible studies like like hot potatoes. It was like... It was like... Or, or really all more, more like grenades. Mm-hmm. Uh, just threw them down just so they blow. And um, it was extremely, extremely difficult, extremely difficult for my family. And um, yet, if you ask me what I would do to do it all over again, I, I think it would just be the, I think I'd do the same thing. Mm-hmm. So, but it, it led, it was not right away that, um, that I left the SBC, because let's, let's make clear that when I say evangelical leaders, it was not just the SBC leaders, it was very much um very prevalent in the conser- in conservative evangelicalism so it would have been you know multiple denominations but where it got where it came to a place of my departure was that our denomination which i dearly loved i mean we we were was certainly man trump took it by storm in a lot in a lot of ways and did they have other good choices in in our conservative opinions no but it was, again, I want to say it was the fervor. It was the fervor with which it was. It was the support. It was the cheering on. It was the making of him as uh, some kind of, he was going to save American Christianity, which did not need saving. Um, Jesus, Jesus is the one who holds American and global Christianity. But um, then what happened was the coming out, you know, of course, long history of racism I've said so many times, sexism and racism so often go, if, if there's this one body that so often there's two hands of that one body, one's going to be sex. If one's sexism, the other's going to be racism. If one is racism, the other one's going to be sexism. It's just, I don't know why, but it's just, there's a tendency for it to be that way. So time passes and then comes about this huge scandal in the SBC where it becomes known how many um, abuse uh, reports that legitimate 
um, accusations and some that have already been, you know, prosecuted and all come out, how prevalent it had been in the SBC. And what was the, I mean, nail in the coffin for me was that at the same time that that's going on, it becomes the focus of so many people in that denomination um, that women not be allowed to um, to ever be upfront. That it they were coming down tighter and tighter and tighter on women's roles, uh, saying that women were after the pulpit and were trying to be pastors. I never knew, never knew one, never knew one that the, it was that, that there's the threat to the pulpit, the threat to the pulpit. Uh, the women are a threat to the pulpit. It was like, no, dudes, the pulpit has been a threat to these women that have brought forth these accusations. And it was like, what? I, I don't, uh, it just killed me. And I'll, I want to be clear, clear. of course it wasn't all of them. So many of you, I, I passed by, I'd have passed by three Baptist churches this morning that would not have even been involved in all of that. They would have been all up in um, the politics. They wouldn't have been, they're just people trying to serve people. That, that love God, but it was this this um, very public constituency that, and I felt like, you know, you're, how can I say, you're responsible for knowledge. And I'd come to know something and come to see something that it was like, the only way to deal with it is to go as an act of protest I will not be a part of this one minute longer. And it was so expensive. And this will be where I will I won't be able to get through this without my voice breaking. But um it was it was like a death. And I don't mean the death of of a friend. I mean like the death of a major family member. Like this was my lifelong denomination. So it 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 just nearly killed me. It just nearly killed me. Um definitely, definitely dealt with some depression and loss and just isolation and free-falling, feeling like I'm just free-falling. So it was extremely difficult. And thank God, um, I have a, so many friends I in um, who are Southern Baptists that I love and will love to the death and respect and so many churches. But it was, it, it was, I came to a place in my life where it was go, go. And um, I went. Too many of us are living in a bubble and not hearing both sides of the world's important stories. It's time for a more rounded perspective. Balanced. Relevant. Discover fresh biblical perspectives as we bring you wide-ranging stories that impact the church, wherever you live, however you worship. Discover the go-to source for Christian news. Subscribe now at premierchristianity.com. Now only £5 for three months. And I know you have a church home now, that you, um, but but how how do you feel about the SPC now looking back? Because you left in twenty one, didn't you? So I did, and I left. Bef- I had already told them. See, the hardest part for me, if you if any of you know anything about the Bible studies, my publisher for Curricula was uh, Lifeway Christian Resources, and I loved them. I still do. I absolutely love them. We had an extremely good relationship. And so, but in order to leave the SBC, because LifeWay was the publishing arm of the SBC, 
I felt like I couldn't do one without the other. And uh, I just, because it seemed to me that one fed the other and that what, and that, that think of it this way, that if, if you saw it as a, a marriage of sorts, that I was really married into the SBC, then, then the, the contract of my marriage would have been life what You understand what I'm saying? So I, I know this sounds convoluted to some people, but I couldn't, I felt like I could not separate the two, that to leave one was to leave the other. I also felt like I, I was so mad at one uh, that it was right that it cost me a great deal because of the other. And by that, I mean, I left some a group of people I so much did not want to leave so that I could leave a group of people that I very much did want to leave. And so, God, it was so, it was so hard and so painful. And um, then the Lord just had to, to take us along and, you know, show, help us find our, our feet again. And he's been so faithful to Keith and I, but it has been quite the journey, quite the journey. So, where would you yourself land on women in leadership now? Because obviously you've you've watched all this, you've felt and realized that th- there's been a change um, in your thinking and what you've yes. thought was being taught um, with pure motives, and you've had to yes. that. So, and I'm land now. I'm re- I'm remembering now, clear that you also asked me a moment ago how I feel about the SBC. Now, I I I am so thankful that that was my denominational heritage. I will treasure it all my life. And I'm so happy to say that they have made some gains in uh, responses to protection against sexual abuse and in favor of victims. And there are many churches that are responding to the crisis well, others that are not. So it's is better than it was, but do I still have a great love and great respect for many Southern Baptists? Absolutely. Would I, upon invitation, uh, come and serve at a Southern Baptist? Absolutely, without a doubt. But will I go back? I can't imagine that that um, I will. I think there comes a time when there's just too much water under the bridge, and and I'm too loaded with problems you know as far as i would if i walked in people would just be like there would be some so happy to see me and some very very happy very very unhappy to see me but the way i feel i oddly clear i don't feel entirely differently about it now than i felt many many years ago i just wasn't outspoken about it but i i was raised in a church where the only thing that um, if our women were not ordained, they could not be deacons. So, so for instance, at First Baptist Church in Houston, um, we could not have been, I couldn't have been a ordained as a deacon. I would not have been able to be on the pastoral staff uh, in any way and, and, and those kinds of things. But I was given lots and lots of freedom to serve. I mean, lots of freedom. I was on lots of committees. I, I served right in there with my brothers and sisters, shoulder to shoulder. We, and I, I was very often um, put out front. The my pastor did not think that a woman could never stand in a church service. He saw too many reasons. He, he could yes, he could go to First Timothy two and see this, but he could also go to other places and and First uh, uh, Corinthians, and then he could look at where women were clearly. Um, 
serving, even though there were uh, there seemed to be different things that were being understood in chapters that were close to one another. But what what he saw was that upon invitation of the pastor, could a woman address a church? I mean, that I was raised to think that you could do that. I spoke in services. I very rarely spoke in a Sunday morning service, but I spoke in Sunday evening churches on numerous occasions, and I did so at the request of the pastoral staff. So, you know, I what I saw happen, and again, there are other people that would see this differently, but what I saw happening in the last 15 years was a tightening down. The, the Southern Baptist Church and I'm talking about overall as a denomination, and I'll talk about it culturally so that there's always the exceptional churches. But what I began seeing, and particularly coming out of the seminaries, was a tightening down, was that many women were not even able to do Sunday school. Even Sunday school was not available to many of them to teach. So women were losing opportunity. It wasn't just that they were not getting more opportunity. They were losing the opportunities that my generation had. That's what I objected to is that it got tighter and tighter and tighter. So what I what I where I am now, um, a woman like there are different um different regions of the country where they could be at the at the top level. They could be head pastors, but not in my uh, in my region. But they could be uh, women could be ordained as deacons and women could certainly uh, serve the church. And so one of the things I appreciated that I saw not too long ago, I was watching, you know, just a cloud of criticism. And I, I don't ever go looking for it, but it was just sitting there right before my eyes clear. And I, I saw somebody say, well, at least if at least she left and went to a place where it was closer to what she believed that women could biblically do. And so I, I appreciated that he at least acknowledged, okay, well, she did. She did leave. And, you know, we could at least say she didn't stay and just, you know, have a continued fit, which is what I was doing, which it was, you know, at some point you go, all I'm doing is making us all unhappy. Get out and, you know, go where it's a little more of what you think yourself is something okay. comfortable. So would you say you still are complementarian then? I cannot bear to put myself in either of those two categories, complementarian or egalitarian. I can't bear it. And I know I know this is going to be, I know the kind of flack I'm going to get for saying that, but I, I am so weary of the compartmentalization of cultural Christianity that I can no longer bear it. And I just, I want to be a Jesus follower. I am a Jesus freak. And so put me in, you could put, ask me one question. I could go, hmm, I probably land on the complementary side. You'd ask me another question, hmm, I definitely land on the egalitarian side. I, I, can't, I could no more tell you the answer to that. I can tell you some of the things I'm most comfortable with. But at the end of the day, I have seen misuse of both categories and I am just tired of them. Fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, Claire. It's a madhouse over here on this side of the pond. That's all I can tell you. 
Yeah. And and really, I, I just wanted to ask you about about your relationship with Twitter as well, because obviously mm. you, you spoke out against what you saw with the response to Trump and you've called out sexism and racism. Um, and, but you've also suffered such an amount of abuse by Twitter. So how do you decide what to comment on and why do you still use that as a platform to do so? Oh, that is a great question. And I have had to do a lot of rethinking about, okay, how miserable do you want to make your life? And so what I, what I have tried to do over the last, well, certainly the last year, and I've tried to do it for pretty much the last two years, is to not feel the need to answer to every single thing that comes up. And that is that is the trap I think a lot of us got into, is that any issue that came up, we just all felt, and, and we would be pressured to. Here's what they would do, and I, I know you've seen this. If you've ever been on Twitter, you've seen it. Oh, your silence is is blaring. Um, the, it, just where they read everything into you, that if you didn't comment, then you automatically thought, well, that's not only is that fair, is that unfair, it's not even reasonable there are times that you don't get on Twitter. You don't even know what the latest um, uh, big dust up was. There are other times I that these days that I have a really big opinion, but I'm just like, you know what? I'm so busy at work right now. I, I want to drop a bomb, a sociological bomb on Twitter, a theological bomb on Twitter, like I like I want to shoot off my little toes, and so it'll just be like, I'm I'm not getting into that. And I've gotten to where the more I am demanded to answer to something, I'm talking about to an issue, um, the more, more I recognize that those demanding an answer are never satisfied. I've never had, I have never one time had an answer demanded from me on social media that I've answered it and then they just went, oh, good to know. Not once, not once. So you get to where it's like, it's it's not worth it. I don't spend as much time on it as I used to. And so I'm I, nowadays... What I mostly do is when I just can't bear it any longer. I wait. I, I was trying to explain this the other day. I, I try to first think, okay, this is just bait, or this is just, you know, um, this is just going to be kind of this little passing thing. But then if something sticks around a long time, you know, then I, and I'm thinking, this is so anti-Christ, then it's going to probably get to some point where I'm going to open my big mouth and and usually know to some degree what I'm doing, but it, my relationship with it has, has changed. I'm still outspoken, but I don't, uh, I don't play the game. I didn't understand back in those days how many of those people were trolls. I didn't understand back in those days that, uh, that, that, that uh, pack, that wolf pack mentality that they just jump on whoever they saw was vulnerable boom and all of this and so it's I have a different kind of view of it now and not as intimidated by it and not as driven by it and talking about different views how do you I mean obviously you, you talked about how your ministry has changed a lot and um that it suffered greatly after yes. everything that happened so how do you view your life, your ministry, and the church now. Now you've been oh. through this process of looking yes. back and you've been through this period of loss. How okay, cool. Well, you know, it, it nearly killed us. It just, it also brought such upheaval to the ministry. And I've said so many times that it is a testament to their 
character that so many of us are still together because I caused the the Trump thing caused division within my own ministry because um, we had you know we just had never done the political thing here and never gone there and woo we were on different sides of all sorts of lines and it was it was very very hard but I, I'd love to tell you how it has and is turning out because what it did for us I don't just say this to um, somehow keep from looking hurt and vulnerable to all that has happened because we were very hurt and very vulnerable <laughs> to all that happened. I'm just going to say that God is good because I was so certain that we were done. I mean, done. I Claire, I couldn't have seen any way past this. I also could hardly see past my Southern Baptist world. I really couldn't. Um, to me, it was it was so much of of uh, the world that I served that I knew I had that if that if I if I was no longer welcome anywhere in that world that I I felt like I wouldn't have any ministry left, and so I thought this is you know you've done this to yourself so you may as well receive it. There's nothing you can do. So, um, but what did happen is that. Every single group, especially we get into a pandemic, that all plays into it. We have no more conferences for a time. We can't even go to church for a time. All of these things happen. So that by the time we're getting our our feet back out there again in those waters, Claire, it didn't matter to us what size the group was. We were so happy to be there. We didn't know what to do. So what it did, it made us hungry again. It made it all new uh, because we were starting what felt to us like starting at scratch. Um, We were now taking on producing our own Bible studies, and we had had a huge, huge uh, publisher to do that. I mean, we were like, (laughs) it's 15 of us, 15 of us put on our own events and stuff like that. But we were so grateful. I... I can't explain it, any invitation. Nothing. Let me just say this: nothing is taken for granted. Not one person who orders anything from this ministry is taken for granted. Not one single dollar of donation. We're just like what? So, in a way, and not a small one, in a monumental way, the outcome of it was something I would have longed for so much, and that would have been to end my ministry years as passionate as I began them, and as hungry, and as anxious to serve, and to really want to be there, and to consider it a privilege. You know, it just put us right back at square one, and it's been a beautiful thing. Not one single part of it has been wasted on us. Any time something really great has happened. We break out in praise and and applause here at the ministry and just thank the God who has kept us. You've been listening to The Profile in association with Premier Christianity magazine.